Well, hello everybody, it's uh, Analog Mike coming to you from Hong Kong for episode 27 of Frame Focus Photo. And uh, Len, you are with us as well, how are you doing? Yeah, good morning everyone, yeah, I'm good Mike, can't complain on my side of the world. Good, good. Well, uh, we'll start off with our customary weather reports, and since uh, we've got you online first, well, uh, how's the weather in Aberdeen? Yeah, you know what, it's stock standard summer weather. Um, misty outside, 12 degrees Celsius, but it looks like it's going to be one of those blimey days. Get our suntan later on this afternoon. Ah, very, very good. And um, we are joined by someone in Hong Kong. Uh, it's our pleasure to welcome William Furness, uh, an award-winning photographer based here in Hong Kong and uh, he's going to be talking to us today. Uh, William, thanks for coming on the show. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Gentlemen, thank you very much for having me. Yeah, so uh, since we're both in Hong Kong, uh, we're going to put you on the spot and test your weather reporting skills. How's the weather in Hong Kong? <laughs> well, as I look out of my window, I observe that it is in fact uh, 31 degrees centigrade right now and uh, happily it's clouding in a little bit so it's not so uh, atomically hot um, uh, as it goes it is still extremely humid however so stock standard Hong Kong summer weather since they moved the Sun a little bit closer to planet Earth um, we're all enjoying uh, extra heat well the good news is uh, you're both a talented photographer and an excellent weather weatherman so uh, you've got career choices <laughs> you have no idea how obsessed with the weather i am oh, it is obviously i'm british that means i'm obsessed with the weather but as a photographer who photographs outdoors the weather is you know the biggest thing for yeah me, pretty yeah much. absolutely yeah and uh Hong Kong has its own unique set of challenges when it comes to that as well. Yeah. It surely does. Everything is changing all the time. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, listen, William, it's so cool to have you with us, man. Um, I guess uh, we'll just get into it then. Uh, maybe you can just give us a little bit of a background uh, to yourself. I mean, I know just from reading on your website that you actually formally studied as an engineer, if, if I'm not mistaken. I did. That was, uh, that was a long time ago now. I'm still very interested in everything to do with uh, processes and formats, but um, yeah, I, uh, I gladly exchanged engineering for photography pretty much as soon as I left university. Um, yeah, I, I, I did the typical um, kind of make cash jobs to start with. I was a van driver and a waiter when I first arrived in Hong Kong, I delivered sandwiches from a basket just to keep the, uh, the cash flowing between, uh, between photo jobs. And uh, yeah, so I, I, I have that kind of typical photographic uh, story of uh, a lot of hustle at yeah. the beginning of my career, a lot of sleeping in the car and uh, you know, doing, doing whatever it took to, to make photography a success. And basically, uh, my dad said to me, um, well, actually, I said, he said, do you think you can make this photography work? I said, I'll take a gap year, dad. And, uh, and if it doesn't work out, I'll return to engineering. And I'm still on that, uh, that year off, uh, you know, 32 years later, <laughs> basically. Uh, superb, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. How, did that, I mean, how did that transition take place? I mean, what spurred your interest in photography? Um, I think initially I liked the idea, like a lot of um, uh, people, I liked, I liked the technology. My uh, father gave me, uh, passed down a, a camera and I just, the object was very appealing to me. Um, my grandmother was a professional photographer. Uh, right until the end of her life at uh, age 92. Oh, wow. So okay. she had a wonderful dark room and amazing cameras. And whilst uh, the adults were discussing boring things on a Sunday afternoon at tea time, I would be looking through the British Journal of Photography that she had on her coffee table and uh, analyzing oh. everything I could in there. It was fascinating to me. Yeah. So, so it was just a kind of... Um, uh, uh, an osmosis, I guess. There was there was enough photography around for me to uh, to notice it and take an interest in it, and uh, 
and slowly but surely uh, I became more and more fascinated. Mm -hmm. But also I loved to walk and be out in nature and that is a good pairing with photography. You know, you take the camera with yeah. you, you, you're struck by a moment or an atmosphere and uh, you try and record it uh, with the camera and that, that was my start really. So it was uh, nature photography. Okay, cool, yeah. And uh, you primarily started doing uh, portrait uh, portraits, um, <laughs> but that uh, that changed when you came to Hong Kong. So uh, maybe you can, that's maybe a two-part question. First of all, what brought you to uh, what brought you here? Um, well, I once I uh, I left university, I uh, determined that I should work as a photographic assistant to learn the business of photography. You know, I desperately wanted to be a photographer. Um, so I got many um, different assisting jobs with a variety of photographers, but the, one of the, the big parts of the photographic industry is, you know, events and portraits, and um, that hasn't changed. And in those days, that was very much the case. So the photographers I was working for were people like Terry O'Neill and Patrick Litchfield, and they, those were big, big names in the, you know, the 70s and 80s and, and to an extent the 90s. And yeah. they uh, were shooting portraits and that's what I learned. And I also worked for a very good um, photographic studio in London called Photographic Records. And they um, photographed a lot of uh, events and weddings and uh, things of that nature. So that was really the grounding that I had in photography. That was what on, was on offer uh, as far as um, being an assistant was concerned. So those were the skills that I, I learned initially. Um, however, after three years of, of doing that kind of thing, I looked into my future and all I could see was one, uh, you know, countryside English wedding after another after another. And, uh, you know, age 23, I decided this, this is just isn't exciting enough, uh, a little too predictable. So um, friends of mine had moved to Hong Kong and they said that it was buzzing, exciting and, uh, you know, fabulous. Um, so I thought, OK, I'm, I'm going to cancel my, uh, not cancel, stop taking any more uh, event bookings and uh, come October 1993 I moved here That's and, cool. and pr I've been here pretty much ever since. I spent some time in New York but uh, yeah Hong Kong is it. I love it. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Uh, that's really evident in your pictures as well as sort of your uh, affection for the city. So when you got to Hong Kong, I mean, your photography changed quite a lot as well. Um, maybe you want to talk us through that a little bit. Well, yeah, it, 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 my photography, um, I still, because, you know, the bills need to be paid, I, I work as a commercial photographer. Yeah. Um, and I pursue my personal interest as a photographer. And so they're two, they're two separate things. So the personal work is the work that you'll find on my website bearing my name. And then I have another website uh, with all of my commercial work that I, I, I do for clients. Um, so I'm still doing the portraiture and I shoot for hotels and I shoot for property developers and architects and, uh, and, and people like that. But at the same time, when I came to Hong Kong, you know, uh, pretty much immediately, I, I started. I started getting interested in shooting cityscapes uh, and aspects of, of the mechanics of, of city life that uh, were very new and exciting to me. Mm -hmm. um, it really, it really kind of blew my mind Hong Kong when I first arrived, and it's taken a long time to properly discern the kind of why. Uh, of that because you know you might simply think well it's amazing it's busy it's exciting but there's there's a lot of detail and granularity to why Hong Kong is the special place it is I think and that's what I've been looking at through my photography that's what I'm interested in with my personal work yeah yeah I, I think that comes through really clearly uh, in, the, in the images um, yeah uh, are your photographs at all in any way sort of influenced by your engineering background or, or, is, or are they two totally separate interests in, in your world? 
Um, I think I got into the engineering because I was interested in, in um, mechanical uh, things and processes. Um, so so the, the reason for the interest in engineering is kind of the same reason uh, I, I, for my approach to photography. I like to l see the idea in my mind and then I like to figure out how I'm going to uh, express it photographically. Yeah. And the expression of it photographically um, usually involves some kind of, uh, I, I like it to involve some kind of involved complex photographic um, process. You know, solving a, a nice technical problem gives me a lot of pleasure. Mm -hmm. yeah. <clears throat> nice. uh, um, you said earlier that you also spent some time in New York. Um, did you find the time in New York sort of influenced your photography in any which way? You know, differences between that and Hong Kong? Yeah, absolutely it did. I, I met um, a very... Uh, I, I met someone who had a profound influence on me in Hong, in Hong Kong when I was working as a commercial photographer. His name is Asa All, and he introduced me to the idea of um, photography as an art form. I hadn't, it, it hadn't been on my radar really prior to that. You know, I knew all of yeah. the great names in uh, photography like Cartier Bresson and Ansel Adams and people like that. Yeah. But the idea that you could can see, you know, have a concept and pursue that concept um, wasn't something that uh, had really occurred to me uh, until I met this particular person. And then having met him, I moved um, to New York uh, with a girlfriend at the time. Uh, for two years I was living there and I became much more exposed to photography as an art form at yeah. you know, all the wonderful museums and galleries that they have in New York. And that, that opened my eyes to, to, to photography in this light. And because I was living there, I didn't have a work visa. Um, I had quite a lot of time on my hands to, to pursue you know, new and uh, different ideas. And that's, that's where the, the, you mentioned that grid system um, you know, body of work. That's where that started, uh, pursuing that idea in New York. So New York was a big, a big influence on me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I suppose that's probably a good time to actually move on to uh, one of your first projects, which we want to look at, which is the grid system. Um, okay. Do you want to tell us a little bit about it and how it started and what it's all about? Sure. 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 So, um, you you must be familiar with this uh, Holger camera. Yes, yeah, very. Yeah, the very little familiar. plastic camera yeah. uh, the, where, where you can make all sorts of uh, uh, mistakes and errors and sometimes, you know, uh, create wonderful, uh, happy accidents. So I was actually on Llama Island and I was walking down the street and a guy had laid out a whole um, kind of uh, spread of, of bits and pieces. And one of the things was a camera called an Agfa Isolet, which is a camera from the 60s. And it's basically, you know, a Holger camera is, is modeled on something like an Agfa Isolet, not necessarily entirely in the mechanics. The, the Agfa Isolet folds out, it's a, a clamshell camera, but um, you know, everything you can do wrong with a Holger, you can do wrong with an Agfa Isolet. And the main thing that you can do wrong is you can forget to wind on the film or not wind it on enough. And so first few rolls through the, the delightful little Agfa, I started making these mistakes. I was like, ooh, this is really interesting. Um, I'm certainly not the first photographer ever to have taken an entire strip of 120 film and, um, uh, you know, create some kind of one-off cohesive image uh, with it. If you look, you'll find that people like Harry Callahan have 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 done work with with contact sheets and multiple exposures. There's a great photographer called Ray Metzger um, who also uh, did similar kinds of work. Um, you know, even David Hockney has has not even David Hockney. David Hockney, the the Yorkshire painter, has has done a lot of work with 
with cameras and photography where he, he montages things together. Um, but I didn't know about those guys at the time when I started this. So it was all very new and fresh and exciting to me. So whilst those, those other works are out there, you know, I have, I think, I hope I have my own particular kind of take on it. Going back to the engineering, I'm, I'm quite into precision and uh, everything lining up just the way I want it to. Um, and when, so when you take something like an accident and decide to perfect the accident, that's a, a, an amazing rabbit hole you can jump down. So you imagine you have a whole roll of 120 film, or like a, once you start overlapping the frames, instead of, uh, they're six by six frames, instead of um, 12 frames, you wind up getting around 27 frames. Um, you can, and that's 27 separate interactions that can occur and maybe more, I may be baffling myself. But the point is, there's a lot going on on those rolls of film and a lot of possibilities. You can move around, you can travel, you can stay in one place and repeat the same image over and over again. Um, you can do different times of day. Um, there's all, there are so many possibilities once you, once you move away from just the idea of taking one static frame and calling it a, a day. You know, once, once you get into the idea of, of, of a narrative without going as far as actually making uh, a, a, a film, you know, like a movie, um, it becomes very, very interesting. Um, yeah, and, and, and exciting and expensive. Many, many rolls of film <laughs> with my feet as the last frame or the sky or something, you know, that I've taken by mistake. So, yeah, it's uh, it, it, it was it was a, it was a great process, and I have to say, doing something difficult like that makes you generally a much better photographer as well, because, you know, it, it it's it's pressure. You really want the you know just well. Actually, I have to say, one of the things that got me interested in the idea of contact sheets was that time spent at photographic records in London, we would deliver to our clients contact sheets, enlarged contact sheets, so they could easily pick and choose the images they want to make print. So these contact sheets were, I think, on 20 by 24 inch paper. Oh, wow. And they were beautiful things, you know, yeah. 36 shots on a, on a roll of film and 20 by 24 inch contact sheets. And it, you look at the contact sheet and, and, and you can see how good the photographer is or you can see how good you were at the time when you shot that roll. Because if you get 36 and they're basically 36 good ones, that's fantastic. And then if you go from one to 36 and you're telling an interesting story, even better. So quite a few of the clients would actually just take that nice big contact sheet and get it framed and hang it on the wall. Um, because it was such a, a beautiful object. And I think that's one of the, the things about photography that can be lacking or it makes us jealous of other art forms. Of this photograph tends to, tends to and now particularly with digital, be this kind of 2D object with no physical form. You know, it lives on your phone or in your computer, mm. even as a glossy print from the lab. It's not that nice an object. But when you have the contact sheet with all those numbers on the side and, uh, you know, maybe it's a bit bigger, that's actually becomes quite a nice thing. It grounds it in reality. And that is very appealing to me as well. So that's, that's basically the, the birth of this was a happy accident. And then the ongoing process was because of the kind of, uh, you know, OCD quality that a lot of photographers have uh, and I, I continue to do this you know the ideas quite happily keep coming and uh, and and I love I love to sh to shoot in this way and I've adapted it over time as well it's not it's not an ag for isolate anymore I've, I've used different formats and uh, so whatever the idea is I, I cook up a new a new approach really I take it with the engineering background I mean you're 
um, you are so precise. Now look at some of the photos you got on your websites. How do you actually visualize these beforehand? And I mean, they literally, they line up 100%. Um, um, some of the, the larger formats you got in the cities or buildings. Mm -hmm. um, you do it fast and you practice and, and you know, obviously there are, there are a bunch of, of screw-ups. One or two of those large format, and actually I think only one that you'll see on my website, is an amalgam of more than one roll of film. Okay, because, you know, yeah. uh, you, if you look at the film rebate, if you look at the Oculus photograph, uh, mm. um, Santiago Calatrava's Oculus in New York, the, uh, the terminus of the, uh, the, the path train into uh, the bottom of Manhattan, um, it is, I think it's, you'll see that it's a roll of Portra 400 film, and then the remainder is Portra 800 film. So you can see that, in fact, um, I put, I, I've created a contact sheet out of two rolls of film. I took them one after the other, um, but I want, that, was the, that was the visual that I had in my mind, and it just so happened that by combining uh, rolls of film, I, I got the outcome I was looking for. So I'm not, um, I'm not precise, yes, but I'm not completely crazy. I am willing to bend my own rules a little bit, I guess, or what you might perceive to be my rules. Yeah. Uh, that's really cool. Yeah. And uh, also, I like to shoot everything by hand, so it is quite skillful. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I think something I found quite amazing about the project is it's been going now for over 20 years. Uh, and yeah. uh, what sort of is the underlying motivation of that sort of discipline to... Uh, because as you as you say you, you're still continuing with this project even though it's sort of out there uh, what's, yeah. the, what's the motivation to stay so disciplined to this idea and just keep revisiting it I just think it's a as far as you know a little a little a little piece of visual language it, it's, it's it's just ongoingly applicable and actually as as things become you know more digital you can't. You can. You could easily do this digitally. You know, you could go out and you could shoot twelve frames in a square format on a on a camera film, lay them out as a contact sheet, and you're done, right? But um, that takes away from the idea of this physical object, yeah. which I like. Yeah. Um, uh, it, it, I think it it lends validity to the to the image that digital. You know, we obviously had the wonderful period of time when the camera never lied. Well, now they just passed a law in Nussau that says you have to, um, on social media, uh, this, yeah. mark down that your image has been digitally manipulated because social media is having such a, a detrimental effect on a lot of young people because, uh, you know, they're comparing themselves to these fantasies. So I think it's, it's, it's good to... to basically have that kind of stamp of credibility on your image that says this is what I shot you know I haven't messed around with it or if I have messed around with it you're going to know because you can obviously see yeah, um, yeah. and uh, so that so it, I think it's still relevant to shoot in this way I don't think it's old-fashioned or archaic or anything like that I just think it's a a good way of expressing um you know, the things that I'm interested in, which is usually the mechanics of city life, uh, ideas uh, about, uh, good ideas about the city, sometimes bad ideas about the city, aesthetically beautiful things, things sometimes they're just fun, you know? So uh, um, the Oculus one, for instance, is about the kind of glory of, of that the can be brought to a daily commute by a fantastic piece of architecture. Yeah. Um, so that was what I was looking for with that. Um, other things like the taxis. I'm very. It looks looks like I'm obsessed with taxis. <laughs> well, I'm re I'm really obsessed with the idea that you can put your hand in the air, get into a car, and be taken anywhere you want as long as obviously you can afford it. There's a wonderful scene in Splash, where Tom Hanks puts his hand in the air. He's in New York and he says. Take me to Cape Cod. 
And uh, Cape Cod is like 300 miles away, right? <laughs> you know, so this idea of freedom of choice is, very, is a very interesting aspect of city life. Now, I'm the kind of person where you, you, you hand me the, the entire European summer uh, train timetable and I'm in heaven. I mean, imagine the possibilities, right? Yeah. You can get, uh, particularly yeah. if you've got one of those interrail tickets that they sell, it's just fantastic. So I love the idea of, of um, I think it's in, in, incredibly civilized, this concept of, you know, this, this, this freedom of choice that city life uh, uh, provides us with. You know, I grew up in the countryside where the choices were walk the dog or be super bored. Uh, you know, <laughs> and that was kind of like the two choices. Um, no, no reflection on on the the wonderful upbringing I had. I had a, I basically had a, a great and wonderful time. But but there there were there were less things to do. Uh, yeah. You know, there are intrinsically less things to do if you live um, if you live live in the countryside. Yeah. So this the, this freedom of choice uh, that one has in the city is is a theme in my work as well. Yeah. Yeah, I can identify with that because I spend a lot of time just walking Hong Kong and uh, I have a sort of similar feeling about it that, you you know, within the city you can walk anywhere you want and that there doesn't have to be any destination in mind. You can walk mm. for hours here, uh, literally. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's wonderful. And then, you know, it really almost doesn't matter where you end up. Um, yeah, it's, it's something that we never had in South Africa because of security concerns and you know you didn't normally just go for a walk down the road because you'd probably come back without your wallet um, <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, but yeah I mean and you know when I arrived in Hong Kong it was just sort of like has just this almost instantaneous freedom to go wherever I wanted in the city which was amazing yeah and then, of course, you can burst out into amazing countryside. Yeah, yeah. Exactly, you know, within yeah, a few minutes yeah, as well. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah. And I, lo I love the, the difference, the elevations, because it's quite steep. You know, it's many, a city of many steps mm. yeah. and hillsides. Um, you know, so you, could, you kind of can travel up, down, sideways. It's, it's, very, uh, it's very interesting. Yeah. It reminds me of those wonderful toys. I never had one of these things, but I would have loved to have had one of these things. You know, um, a big kind of plastic mountain from like the th series Thunderbirds or uh, Star, uh, Star Wars or something with all the little little drawers and landing pads on the side and things like that. You know, it's, it's very multidimensional. Yeah. And yeah, as you say, you never know where you're going to wind up. You know, uh, yeah. nooks and crannies, it, uh, Brilliant big vistas, small things. I mean, you see a lot of very interesting detail street photography of Hong Kong taken by many photographers. Yeah, it's 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 a it's definitely a unique place. Uh, it's kind of accidentally fantastic. I think. Yeah, that's uh, like the way you put that. Uh, the amazing thing is you can also walk down the same sort of area in Hong Kong twenty times. And each time you'll discover something new about it, which uh, I find quite fascinating as well. Or, it, yeah. or it's just a little bit different. Um, yeah. Um, well, moving on from uh, one city project to the next, uh, something I find really fascinating is the reflecting man. Um, and there was a collaboration between yourself and the sculpture. So. That, that, that's really interesting. Why don't you tell us a little bit about it, especially maybe for our listeners who haven't seen it before. Um, what is The Reflecting Man? Okay, well, um, I, I, did, uh, I, I, I shot a body of work about the surface of the typhoon shelters, and um, that was water reflections. Um, my friend, Paulo Poirio, um, who is a, a, an a fantastic sculptor um, saw that work and had this idea that um, I might be a good person to photograph a sculpture he has created and the sculpture is called The Reflecting Man and it is a, a, um, a sculpture made out of highly polished sheets of steel 
um, in the form of a man, and he is clearly thinking, considering. Um, and he, I think, initially thought that I would, I would, I would somehow, you know, take the man and 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 use and and, and incorporate him into some of these water reflection images, perhaps. I don't think he had a very, like, necessarily specific idea, and he was certainly open to me, um, you know, coming up with, with concepts as well. And I think he initially, Paulo, was looking for, you know, five or six images. Um, but the reflecting man um, really intrigued me. Do you remember the, I don't know if you know um, this story of uh, the Iron Giant, if you ever read, it's a by a, a writer called Ted Hughes, uh, um, yeah. and it's about an alien metal giant that comes to Earth. Do you, did you ever read that book as kids? Yeah, vaguely, it rings a bell. Yeah, okay, so he, he's, it struck me that this, this sculpture was rather like this iron giant, you know, an, an alien from another place looking at, uh, and, you know, potentially he could be looking, he's considering, he's judging, he's approving, he's disapproving, you know, you can't really, he's a little bit enigmatic, right, the sculpture. Um, so I thought, let's take the sculpture and move him all around the Hong Kong environment and look at a few of the the things that I, you know, either approve or disapprove of or think are interesting or uh, fascinating aspects of, of daily life. So that's what we did. So instead of just taking two or three images, Polo and I wound up taking about 20 different photographs where we manhandled his sculpture, which I think weighed 120 kilograms. I was just about to ask um, you that, actually, yeah. how heavy yeah. is the thing? <laughs> yeah, super heavy. It's based in a, a piece of stone or marble. And um, yeah, we a couple of off-duty firemen helped us to move it. Really tough, tough guys helped us move it to all of these different locations. So we took him to the Hong Kong Opera, and photographed him there. We took him uh, to Sheko Beach and photographed him, you know, in amongst all of the, the plastic garbage that was washed up in a little cove um, uh, in Sheko. We, um, we photographed him in the Gresham Street Market, which was in the process of being demolished. Um, we photographed him, you know, all over the place. It was, it was a, a very, uh, yeah, it was it was it was a fun and interesting project, and um, and he he's just a very engaging thing to shoot. You know, highly polished metal. The fun you can have with that on its own, just photographically, is is, is great. But uh, then incorporating this idea of this kind of alien dropped into Hong Kong to take a look of it, a look at it was 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 I think an interesting interesting approach to to these issues around. The, the city yeah i mean i i mean they could just as well be almost because they very sort of communicative about your own thoughts about the city they could almost be like self-portraits in a way you, you know just because they contain so much of your own observations about hong kong um yeah yeah i think that that's that's fair i mean it's bound to that's bound to be the case you know we yeah. were coming up with these ideas yeah. So the, he was taking on uh, kind of our point of view. Yeah, sure, yeah. sure. That's yeah. really cool. Um, yeah. yeah. I know what I quite like. I mean, I had a look at uh, one of the things you had on YouTube as well, which not on your website, but you've got that time lapse. And I mean, I love making some time lapses. Um, so you've got one there from obviously when you did it, uh, and you just see this Iron Man basically watching over the city as you've got all the people hustle and bustle walking through. Um, yeah. I, yeah, I and time lapse is such a brilliant format, you know. Yeah. The th the fun that you can have with, I, I like I like working within the constraints of a format. So, constraints of the format would be the constraints of the contact sheet, for instance. Yeah. Um. Or, but now we have all of this digital social media platforms like YouTube, like Instagram, yeah. like Facebook, uh, etc. And Instagram in particular has quite a few different um, formats. 
And instead of just um, taking, you know, the, the, the thing at face value and throwing a snapshot from one's phone at, at the format, I think it's interesting to, to, to shoot specifically for the format and, and see what you can, you can come up with. Um, because it, it's fascinating and I love the idea of, of, um, of sequences, as you know. Um, yeah. so, so time lapse is, 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 a great, is a great one for that. We had a wonderful exhibition of that show. They, we took over an architect's office in Wan Chai, big architect's office with many, many screens. And we had the show at one end with the reflecting man and, and many of the pictures uh, kind of tacked to the wall, basically. Um, big size. Uh, and then we turned all of the, the architect's monitors around so they were all facing the exhibition turned off all the lights in the work area and put that time-lapse on so so the reflecting man time-lapse was on every single screen it was so cool wow, wow that's yeah awesome. yeah i would have loved to have yeah. seen that yeah, yeah, it, was, yeah. it was fun yeah yeah that's yeah. very cool well uh you seem to lead us perfectly onto each new topic so you're talking about online platforms and uh, you recently did a kickstarter called wild in the jungle um, oh yeah. So uh, let, let's uh, go on to that. Tell us a little bit about that. Um, we um, we have this conversation uh, quite often around my wife, and it's basically, you know, what snakes have you seen lately? And I think it comes up because she is absolutely petrified of snakes. I don't know how people sense this about her, but you know the snake <laughs> Hong Kong snake conversation keeps seeming to come up. So, well, you know, I an, think it's, it's an interesting uh, location in Hong Kong to uh, choose to live uh, Lemma Island if you if you don't like yeah. snakes, right? <laughs> well, well, no, just make sure you live first floor, second floor. Yeah, ground floor is where where the action is as far as creepy crawlies <laughs> and snakes are concerned in Hong Kong. So I live on the second floor, <laughs> but. Um, but yeah, so this conversation was constantly happening, and 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 uh, I, it, it it's a, it's a strange thing to be living in a in a, a a super super city like Hong Kong, you know, modern international city, and one of the concerns or interests that people have is what snakes have you seen lately? Um, so I decided, okay, this snake thing is interesting. I'm going to pursue this, and I had been photographing. A lot of the every lots of photographers in Hong Kong were drawn to shooting the neon signs, um, and but a friend of mine, a gallery owner in the UK, had suggested that we actually commission some neon signs to be made that he would then sell at his gallery in London. So um, I decided this is an interesting idea. Let's I'll go out and I'll photograph every single neon sign I can for the sake of inspiration. Um, and so that's what I did. So I had tons and tons of pictures of neon signs. Uh, ultimately, the project with my friend in the UK didn't come about, um, but I had these images, uh, and I, I really wanted to do something with them. And it, in the process of, of photographing all of these signs, I realized that the individual letters, um, you know, the artistry involved, not only was it all very different, but some of the individual letters were just very beautiful on their own. So I thought, okay, I've got all of these signs. I've got many, many letters. I'm going to formulate an alphabet. Once I've got the alphabet, you know, I can do things with it. Um, didn't really know what I was going to do with it, but I, I wanted the alphabet. So I ultimately found Q. Q was the letter that was the hardest to find in the whole of Hong Kong. Um, at the time I shot this, all of those banquet halls in Hong Kong um, with the huge signs that went out over the road, those had already been taken down. So where do you find a queue? Well, Queenie Sauna in Jordan has three neon signs. <laughs> I, was, I was lucky, I found my queue. So, so uh, I managed and to- And your queue still had uh, uh, power in it. It hadn't oh, uh, yeah. died you out can yet. Go, the, the if you're, if you're feeling, <laughs> feeling a little foot sore and, and achy, 
just head to Queenie Sauna. You'll be all set. <laughs> the lights are still on. So, um, okay, so I, I formulated this alphabet. The conversation is happening around snakes all the time. So we have these two things that are going on. We have the urban jungle, and I decided that would be, uh, you know, represented by my neon letters, and the jungle jungle, the wild jungle, which is expressed by the snakes. So the initial work is called Lethal Serpents, and I made a grid of neon letters, and in that grid I hid the names, you know, like a word search, you know, the things that you do when you're bored in the back of the car as a kid, you know, with a pencil and you're looking for, for the different words in the, in the jumble of letters. Uh, you know yeah, I, mean, right? I still yeah. do that from yeah. time to time. <laughs> yeah, okay, very good, very good. Well, um, that's what it is. It's a word search, 10 deadly snakes hiding in a jumble of neon letters. So we have these, this wonderful thing about Hong Kong with the nature and the city being so close together. And that's how I expressed it with this, this, this artwork. So anyway, moving forward, that was two or three years ago. Um, when COVID came along, um, there was little to do. And people were uh, stuck at home. And it, it occurred to me that, you know, as well, people were potentially, you know, um, not having so much disposable income because businesses were in trouble and people were working for no pay and this and that. So um, I decided I wanted to make an artwork that was inexpensive um, that people could do at home, but I didn't want to do anything. Um, I wanted to do something clever and interesting. And I thought, you know, let's do a, let's do a, a jigsaw puzzle. So I expanded on the idea of the nature, and instead of just snakes, I decided to incorporate many of the other wonderful animals we have in Hong Kong. So I created a new uh, neon puzzle called Wild in the Jungle, and in it are 42 different animals hiding in this grid of, of neon letters. So, so that, that was the project, for basically for COVID. And that was last, last year, and I did it on Kickstarter, which was a new experience, and, and it went well. It, it, it was good. We sold, I don't know, about 700 puzzles, which is oh, good. Oh, congrats. Wow. Yeah. That's very cool. It's, Thank uh, you. It's definitely got sort of your signature with that sort of grid approach as well, which, uh, you know, I quite like. And I, I, um, I'm just curious about your experience using Kickstarter. Now you alluded to all the sort of online platforms that people are using these days. Yeah. I mean, what was your experience of uh, using Kickstarter as a platform to, to sell artwork? I think it's perfectly set up to sell artwork. Yeah. So it's, but, but it is only a platform. It's not, um, you, one must not approach it as if it's a marketing device in and of itself. Um, so I have quite a good email list and the, that email list were, you know, largely responsible for the sales of the puzzle. You know, the Kickstarter itself is just a really good platform for something that suits kind of a prepaid offering. Um, so, so I, 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 I would, I would say if, if you're interested in doing something like that, um, you want to make sure you have an audience to market to yeah. um, prior to embarking on it because it, yeah. won't, it won't sell itself. Yeah. I, I'm not yeah. sure how many people found the puzzle through Kickstarter, but it wasn't that many. I, th I think maybe you know, only 50 puzzles were sold to people that I had no connection with at all before I embarked on the, mm. the campaign. Yeah. Um, but it is a very, very good platform for artwork. Um, one of the things that it has built into it, it's a very simple thing, is um, you can limit the availability of your offering. So, for instance, if you had 50 limited edition prints, that works well with Kickstarter because, because it's, it's that, the idea of limited edition is, is built into Kickstarter already. So um, I think it's quite a good thing. So if you were doing um, 
creating an art piece, it doesn't have to be a photograph, it could be anything, but if you're creating an art piece that is very expensive to produce, for instance, and you don't want to make you know, all 50, or you need to commission a, a large number of them to, to, to get that economy of scale in the, in the production cost, um, Kickstarter is a perfect mechanism for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, uh, I feel like, you know, these sort of online platforms, um, I forget what the other one that's similar to Kickstarter, Indiegogo or something like that. Yeah, that's um, right. Yeah, I mean, the, the, it feels like these sort of things are going to play an increasingly important role in the art world, you know, for people to get their work out there as especially now people are traveling less and they're more online um, what are your thoughts of you know going forward for people growing this sort of approach to to get in their work out into the world okay well I think there are there, there, that, that is a, that is an interesting and, uh, and big question so in the world of galleries which is what my generation still perceives as I would imagine as the, 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 the automatic kind of like route to art sales, um, or did anyway until recently, um, there's only space for so many artists. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the gallery system can't tolerate endless supplies of artists. Yeah. Right. You know, they're only, they, they can only make so many people popular enough to uh, you know, charge high prices and pay their expensive rental in, 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 in luxurious areas of, of the world's cities. So if, if you as an artist go down that road uh, and you're successful at it, um, that is wonderful, but you're going to be one of a handful of people on the planet that can achieve that. Mm -hmm. um, if you look at the alternatives, prior to, um, to kind of online shopping, there, there was no alternative really. You know, there were, I guess, a lot of people would, you know, maybe put their work up in the local cafe or something like that, or sell to friends and family. Um, mm -hmm. So it wasn't, it, it, you know, it, it was difficult, I think, for artists, because there's, no, there's nothing, the, the, you know, the, the handful of super popular artists in the world do not represent the totality of brilliant artists in the world. Yeah, yeah, that's a very, okay. very good so, point. Yeah. So, so now, over the course of the last decade, and particularly during this period of COVID, I think a lot of legitimacy has been gained by the online platforms for selling art, particularly if, as an artist, you're willing to offer returns. So you know, uh, a person decides, oh, it's too big, I don't like it, doesn't match the sofa. You know, you can, you can send it back, right? So mm -hmm. I yeah. think that um, th this is going to be a, a, a second uh, art world and um, one that, uh, you know, yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be very worthwhile to, to get involved in. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I, I like it, I think it's good. I've actually put e-commerce onto my website um, and I have been selling prints through my website so um, people don't seem to mind it. it mm -hmm. It's a good thing I think. Yeah, yeah that's very cool. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, we're getting close to the end of the show here, Just we've been going for nearly an hour but uh, I just was curious, do you have any projects that are on the horizon for you that you're able to talk about? Sure, I'm very, very happy to talk about uh, everything that I'm up to. So I basically, I have, uh, I have the, the biggest project I'm doing right now is another look at the um, typhoon shelters and the harbor in Hong Kong. So I, I'm shooting these very, very abstract uh, water reflections. These ones are shot at night. <laughs> Um, this is a digital project, not a film project. I don't mind if, uh, you know, which one I'm shooting. Mm -hmm. So, you know, both of you, analog and digital, uh, 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 I'm, I'm very happy uh, to, to go with. So this project is, yeah, 
the, the main one I'm doing. Um, you can see earlier iterations of it on my website. But since um, a lot of the neon signs on the roofs of Hong Kong have been changed to LED, the opportunities for creating these abstractions have, uh, have changed and, and, and one can do some quite interesting things now. Also, the um, business district in Kuantong has opened up. So yeah. that whole strip of water out by Kai Tak makes for a very interesting canvas at night now. Yeah. With whole buildings lit up with LED. Yeah. yeah. Have, you know, with, with, with panel, LED, basically massive LED panels on the sides of buildings. Mm. Um, it's, it's, a, it, it's a really, a really uh, rich subject. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, well, man, it's been really it's fascinating. I could listen to you talk about all this stuff all day, but uh, maybe we'll save that for an, another round sometime. But sure, for, I'd for, look forward to that. Yeah, uh, but for our listeners who are tuned in, um, maybe you can just tell them how they can follow you and see your walk, work and support what you do. Uh, where Where's the best place for them to find you? I think the best place to look for me is on Instagram. Um, that is just my name, William, and then Furnace, which is F-U-R-N for November, I-S-S. Um, and I have a website, but you can find that in the bio of my Instagram. The website is uh, williamfurnace.com. And yeah, those are the two best things, I think. Yeah, very, very good. Uh, Lynn, anything uh, you would like to add? No, it's been great having you on the show. Yeah, thanks. thank you very much. This is terrific. Yeah, thanks, William. It's really been a superb chat. We'll have to do it again someday. Uh, folks, I hope you've enjoyed the show uh, with William, and uh, we look forward to bringing you another episode soon. Uh, from Analog Mike in Hong Kong, take care and keep safe. Keep all the Cheers. Goodbye, everybody. <laughs>